Gracious God and Father, we're thankful that you have gathered us on this Wednesday evening, those who have been able to safely come. We thank you, O God, for the blessings of providence that have led us here this evening. We are thankful that we can lift our voices to you in sung prayer and praise and confess that you, O Yahweh, are our shepherd. And because you are, O God, we shall not lack for any good thing that we know, O Lord, that the same God who has called us to feast in the midst of our foes assures us that we will dwell in your house with joy in your presence forever. We are thankful, O God, for that amazing grace by which we have been redeemed through the work and righteousness of your Son, a grace that has been brought near to us and applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that day by day you would help us to grow in our gratitude for that grace. We pray that we would live in the strength of it and in the light of it and in the joy of it, O God, and that others might see Christ living within us as you continue to work to transform us. We are thankful, O God, for the freedoms that we enjoy in this land. We pray that you would grant these United States true repentance and spirit-wrought revival and God-fearing leaders to govern us. We pray that you would restrain the foolish and depose the proud and wicked. We pray, O God, for your church, that you would make her strong and faithful and fruitful, not only in this place, not only in this nation, but in every nation under heaven. We pray that the kingdom of Christ would visibly grow and outstrip all of the kingdoms of men, that every knee might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is indeed Savior and Lord. We pray, O God, that you would bless our brothers and sisters who are in need, especially those who are sick in this congregation and loved ones and friends outside of it. We pray that according to each one's need, you would bless, help, heal, encourage, and sustain. We pray that through trials and tribulation, we would see your grace and goodness more clearly and learn to rely upon you in ways that we never otherwise would. We ask your blessing upon our study this evening, that your spirit would be our teacher and would guide us, enlightening the text, illuminating the truths that are contained in it, and enlightening our understanding, O Lord, that we might grow in faith and that we might grow in our desire to be obedient servants to your Son, our King, our Savior, our Mediator, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You want to turn in your Old Testaments to the book of Jeremiah. We're coming back this evening to the latter part of Jeremiah chapter 31. We ran out of time last week as we were trying to finish up the final verses there, and so we're going to be picking back up the new material. We'll start at verse 35 of Jeremiah 31, but I thought it would be good perhaps just because of the significance of this passage, to briefly review what we saw last week in verses 31 to 34. We are in the midst of what we often call the book of consolation. Chapters 30 to 33 of the book of Jeremiah are kind of a a parenthesis of hope. A promise, a strong promise by God given to his people concerning their future restoration that we saw very clearly is a restoration that would be accomplished in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not the hope of a political recovery. It's not the hope merely of a return to the land, although that will happen in kind of a typological fashion when a remnant of the Jews who are dispossessed by the Babylonians do return in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But all of that is anticipating the day when David, or the son of David, will once again sit upon the throne. And God's people will be regathered, not merely from Babylon, but from all of the nations, all of the places where they have been scattered, and will come together not merely to rebuild the temple or to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but to truly be once again the people of God. And we've spent several weeks emphasizing this point. Now last week, as we worked our way through chapter 31, we came to these very crucial verses in verses 31 to 34 that are quoted in the New Testament by the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8 and that are so central to our understanding of the relationship between former administrations of God's covenant and grace and the current administration of that covenant under the kingship of the Lord Jesus. So let me read again verses 31 to 34, and let's just briefly remind ourselves, kind of summarize what we spent some more time expounding last week. In verse 31 of Jeremiah 39, the word of God says, Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says Yahweh. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more." We spent a good bit of time on these verses last week, and let me just remind you of some of the things that we said. We cautioned about the danger of what we might call an over-eschatologized reading of these verses, an an over-realized eschatology growing out of our interpretation, where we begin to think that this new covenant is new in every respect. In the new covenant that God promises, he's going to forgive our sins. So that must mean that he didn't forgive people's sins in the former covenant. In the new covenant, he will put his law into their minds and write it on their hearts. That must mean that he didn't do that in former administrations of his covenant. In this new covenant, the people of God will know the Lord. It must must mean that they never knew him before. Well, that would not be the right way to interpret these passages. What we've seen is that the new covenant is new in many important ways, but it's not entirely new. If we read the New Testament exposition, in fact, if we read the book of Hebrews and its use of this passage, or we read Paul's covenant theology in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, you'll see that he says the new covenant is the Abrahamic covenant in fulfillment, that you are sons of Abraham through believing in Jesus. That this new covenant that Jeremiah has in mind as the Holy Spirit is leading him to write these things is simply the fulfillment of the promises that God made to our fathers long ago. And the former administrations of those covenant promises were typological in that they presented many of these same blessings but not with the same fullness that we would one day know under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, the new covenant is in many ways eschatological. It's oriented toward the end. It's not as if we're waiting for something more. What we're waiting for is the return of Christ and the day of resurrection. But in terms of covenant administration, we have the spiritual fullness that our fathers were promised so long ago. That doesn't mean that God did not forgive sins in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that the people did not know the Lord. It just does not mean that the law of God was not written upon their minds and upon their hearts. In fact, in, in an important sense, God writes that law upon the heart of every person, regenerate and unregenerate, believer and unbeliever, covenant member or covenant stranger, the law of God is written upon the hearts of every human person who is an image bearer. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But what is meant here is a new fullness. The promises that have been made are going to reach a point of consummation. A new fullness in application. These promises and blessings are going to extend not merely to the house of Israel and a few select Gentiles here and there who come to know Yahweh, but no, it's going to extend to all nations, to all peoples. And in fact, even the covenant people who were once recipients of it, there will be a new fullness. I I can't tell you how remarkable Acts chapter 8 is in this regard when you see Philip go to Samaria preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and men and women being baptized in response. We read over that as if nothing interesting has happened, but no, something amazing has happened. Women have received the covenant sign. This is remarkable. In the Old Testament, from the time of Abraham, it was only the men that would receive the covenant sign. But now, men and women are being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so there is a greater fullness in the extent of its application. And there is the consummation of what was only typologically portrayed before. You had bloody circumcision in the Old Testament, but now we have the blood of Christ. And our blood is not shed or pricked in any way in order to symbolize some future consecration uh, by an atoning act. Instead, it is the blood of Christ that fully satisfies, and we simply receive the water of cleansing. We don't have a physical tabernacle or temple that we have to go to anymore because you are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit is making of you a dwelling place for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We no longer have the animal sacrifices and the incense and the types and the shadows that were found in those former administrations because now we actually have the fullness. And as Calvin says in his Institutes, it's not that the ceremonial law has been destroyed in some way, but it rather has been transformed. The Old Testament law, the the ceremonial types and shadows, went into a cocoon, as it were, and they came forth a beautiful butterfly. And you say, one doesn't look much like the other, right? What, what looks like a larva in the Old Testament is now a gorgeous creature that's flying about in the New Testament. And, and, and you say, that's right, but, but it's the same creature. But it has been transformed. It has, more specifically, died and been resurrected in a glorified way. Because that is the nature of Christianity. 
It's not the nature of Judaism as it has come to be expressed or even was understood by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It's certainly not the way that Islam is constructed or Buddhism or Hinduism, even, even faith, so to speak, that believe in some pattern of reincarnation. No, there's not a, a true doctrine of resurrection because resurrection involves transformation. It involves consummation. It involves glorification. And that's what's happening to the covenant. The new covenant is not tear up the old covenant, wad it up, throw it into the trash can, and let's try this again. No, it's the resurrected covenant of grace, transformed, reborn, and brought to its originally intended fullness. It's not new in applying salvation. It's not new in that it saves by the work of Christ. Jesus saves the Old Testament saints as well. It's not new, we said, in terms of having an external and internal administration. And this really is the key point to get at when we think about the ways that brothers and sisters in Christ disagree about this passage. What does it mean that everyone will know the Lord? Well, many will take that to mean that the membership of the new covenant is entirely regenerate. And therefore, we wait until we hear a profession of faith to baptize our children, for example. And we say that the members of the new covenant are entirely regenerate. And if that's the case, then we shouldn't baptize anyone because you can't really be sure based upon a profession of faith that anyone is regenerate. I mean, how many people who have professed faith at a point in time and were baptized have later proven themselves to be unregenerate reprobates and had to be disciplined out of the church? Why is that? Well, because there's still an external internal administration. There's still, there, there's still an outward covenant administration and an inward reality of salvation. Now, I do believe that there is a greater sense in which the members of the new covenant know the Lord. After all, in the Old Testament, Ahab is an Israelite. (laughs) Perish the thought. He is the great, great, great grandson of reprobates, and all of his grandfathers are reprobates, and he is a reprobate, but you know, he's an Israelite. He's circumcised, and, and I guess that means something. Yeah, it means something. It means he's under greater condemnation. That's what it means. That's not how we define the boundaries of the church anymore. That's not how we define the boundaries of the covenant community. No, it is based upon faith. It is by faith. It is through faith that we enter in. But just as we said that the new covenant is new in the extent of its application, we don't extend its application to women and to Gentiles and to the poor and remove the children. (laughs) That's not the way that that works, because as the Lord says here in the book of Consolation, Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 38, he makes clear that this new covenant includes the children of believers. Notice verse 38 of chapter 32, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. The same language is found in Isaiah 59 and verse 21, in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 28, and found throughout the New Testament. And if you want to see more of those references, come back on Sunday morning. But the point is that this new covenant is not new in excluding our children. It includes more, not less. But it is new in that everyone knows the Lord, in that whose children are included, all of the children of the, the valley? No. The children of believers, whom Paul says are holy. They're saints. They're not saints because they're baptized. They're to be baptized because they are saints, even if they're unbaptized. 
They're covenantally holy because they are the children of believers. And that's why Jesus welcomes the infants of those who are coming, disciples who are bringing their children to Jesus. He says, let the children come to me, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Peter says, the promise is to you and to your children. In the same way that the Lord had said that promise was to Abraham and to his offspring. So one of the things that we need to realize is that sometimes the Bible uses language that is like our later theological terminology, but it does not use it with the same type of theological precision that we associate with those terms. What do I mean by that? We say if someone knows the Lord, then he is born again. His heart has been made new He is inwardly, savingly united to Jesus Christ. And we don't believe that the Bible teaches that such a person can ever be lost. But the problem is that the New Testament says there's all kinds of people in the New Covenant that know the Lord and then no longer know Him because they fall away. And it's not because they lose their salvation. We're not not getting rid of the fifth of the five points of Calvinism. What we're saying is that Judas accompanied the Lord Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, preached the gospel, worked miracles, and then betrayed the Lord. And Jesus describes him as a son of perdition and says it would have been better for him if he had never been born. Peter says that there are members of the covenant community, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, who escape the corruption of the world through the knowledge of the truth and are then again entangled in them and overcome. And it would be better for them if they had never known the truth. The Hebrews writer describes those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and partook of the Holy Spirit and the things of God who were sanctified by the blood of Christ, Hebrews 10, 26 to 29, and yet fell away and came under greater condemnation. The point is that when we use the term, know the Lord, we have in mind a definitive regeneration. But that's not necessarily the way that the Bible uses that term because some who know the Lord seemingly do not know him savingly or permanently. And so we have to be careful not to misunderstand what's being said here by interpreting it in a way that would be inconsistent with the way that the New Testament itself unpacks these ideas. There's more that we could say about that, and if there's more questions about it in the Q&A, we can deal with that at the time. Now, let's press forward a little bit and go on through the remainder of this chapter and get on into chapter 32 as much as we can this evening. Chapter 31 of the book of Jeremiah and verse 35. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, that the city shall be built for Yahweh from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Gareb. Then it shall turn toward Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to Yahweh. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. Two things to think about here. One... This is the kind of passage that many of our brothers and sisters who are more dispensationally minded are going to appeal to to say, aha, you see, here is God's purpose for ethnic Israel. Here is God's commitment 
to Israel as an ethnic people, as a distinguishable nation distinct from all other nations, indicating that God has a future purpose for ethnic Israel distinct and separate from his purpose for the church. I would say to read these verses in that way is to interpret them out of context. Because what did we just see? We just saw that the people of God are no longer going to be understood in the ways that they had been for so long. They were no longer going to be measured simply on ethnic or political or national lines. As Paul will say in the New Testament, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, whose circumcision is in the heart, in the spirit. He's going to say that not all of those who are descended from Israel truly belong to Israel. He's going to pray God's blessings upon the Israel of God, which in the letter to the Galatians he makes clear include all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. He says in Romans chapter 11 that the natural branches of of the Jewish people who did not believe in Jesus were broken off and the Gentiles who did believe were grafted in. Now he offers the hope that many of us believe in, that, that many of the Jews, ethnically considered, will be converted and believe in the Lord Jesus and come again in faith and be grafted in again to the tree. Paul holds out, holds out the possibility of that in the future. But the point is, it will only be through faith that that reunion occurs. And so if we're not to understand these verses in terms of ethnic Israel or political Israel, what point is being made? This is the second idea that we need to latch on to. When God sends devastation upon his people, it might seem as if there is no hope at all, and yet the Lord says you could sooner change the rhythm of the universe than change my commitment to my people whom I love. The question then is, is only who are the people of God. And the answer is that you don't know with Ancestry.com or by some kind of a DNA profile. You know who the people of God are by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures. By the way, that's not just a New Testament idea. That's an Old Testament idea. Isn't that the very point that so many of the prophets have been making as we've studied our way through the book of the Twelve and through now... Uh, you know, 60% of the book of Jeremiah? Aren't they calling the people of God, so to speak, to be the people of God and warning them that if they do not repent and humble themselves before the Lord, that they will no longer be His people? Well, how do you square that, Pastor? If, if God is going to divorce Israel, if He's going to send her out of the land, if He is going to cut them off and there's going to be no hope at all of a return, what are we to make of His promises to Abraham? And Jeremiah, just as Paul, just as Jesus says, God hasn't forgotten the people whom he loves. You've just misunderstood who the people are whom he loves. You've you've defined them in the wrong ways. You've, You've thought of them purely along ethnic lines when God is thinking spiritually and covenantally. But his commitment to his people is firm He gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. He disturbs the sea and its waves roar. And the same power that brings these things about in the material creation are evidences 
of God's steadfast commitment to the people whom he loves. So the next time you find yourself at the beach and you are watching the waves come in and you are hearing the water crash on the shore, think about the covenant. The same God who calls those waves onto the shore, who causes the sea to roar, is the same God who has called his people into everlasting fellowship in his Son. The seed of Israel is right here. And it's doing just fine. Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Israel has not been forgotten, and Israel has not been replaced. Israel's identity has simply been clarified. As John the Baptist says, Don't begin to think with pride of yourselves as the children of Abraham. You're a bunch of snakes. Or as Jesus says in John chapter 8, Don't say to yourselves that you're the children of Abraham. God can make children of Abraham out of these rocks. The fact is, many of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day were instead the children of the devil. And the true children of God were those who bowed the knee to the son of his love. If heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done. But of course, the point is you can't. And you can't do it with a telescope launched into space. And you can't do it with any kind of uh, geological survey. You can never truly measure that which God has done. And so his promise to his people remains sure. They shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. God's promises are to his people in Christ. And that has always been Israel's hope of salvation and is to this very day. Now... The first two chapters, the first half of the book of Consolation, are this kind of prophecy. Prophecies about judgment, yes, but salvation through judgment and promises of hope and blessing on the other side. Chapter 32 is something a little bit different. It's going to integrate, as we've seen in many other chapters of the book of Jeremiah and will beyond the book of Consolation, it's going to integrate prophetic discourse with historical narrative. Let's notice what it says. Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the tenth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah king of Judah had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says Yahweh? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah king of Judah shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says Yahweh. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. And Jeremiah said, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of Yahweh, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of Yahweh. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. 
And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Maseah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. This is a fascinating story. So we are now at the tenth year of Zedekiah. And the city of Jerusalem is besieged by the Babylonian armies. Remember that Zedekiah reigns for 11 years, so we are literally in the 11th hour. We are near the end of his reign. Jeremiah is in prison. He is, in fact, in the royal prison, the prison house that is attached to the palace. And why is he in prison? Well, Zedekiah has imprisoned him for preaching the kinds of things that are summarized in verses 3, 4, and 5. What has Jeremiah been saying? He's been saying, the Lord is going to give the city to the hand, into the hands of the king of Babylon. And you, Zedekiah, by the way, you're going to have a face-to-face interview with the king of Babylon, and then you're going to go to Babylon. And oh, by the way, the rest of you who are thinking about resisting the Babylonians, some kind of you know, hope for survival beyond this, you're not going to win. The Babylonians are going to win this war because Yahweh is fighting on their side. Well, Zedekiah doesn't like that message. It sounds like treason. And so he puts Jeremiah in prison. Now, one thing that you could say, perhaps, for Zedekiah, I don't want to uh, speak sympathetically of him, but let's be honest about the fact that for a number of years now, all the way back to the reign of King Jehoiakim, people have been wanting to put Jeremiah to death for saying these kinds of things. There have been efforts made to put him to death. And yet he has, by the providence and grace of God, been spared thus far. Zedekiah could have simply executed him, but he didn't. Because one of the ironies that we see in Jeremiah's ministry is that both Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, the two kings who reigned the longest after the death of Josiah and who are unquestionably the most wicked of the kings after Josiah, they also have a strange respect for Jeremiah. They don't like what he's saying, They don't approve of his ministry. They wish that he would stop and give them some kind of hope instead. But they have a strange respect for him. Now, you could think about another prophet about whom this could be said. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is imprisoned for preaching against Herod Antipas' unlawful, incestuous marriage to his brother's wife. And his brother's wife hates John for it. And she has John locked up in prison. But Herod Antipas respects John. He doesn't appreciate what he's been saying about him. He wishes he would say something else. But he regards him as a holy man. And he has some level of respect and reverence for him as a holy man. And in fact, when he is basically manipulated into ordering John's execution, Herod seems grieved by by being in that position. There is something strange about unbelievers recognizing holy men of God, even when they are committed to a path of rebellion and defiance of the word of God in their mouth. So Jeremiah is in prison, but he is not in the graveyard. 
And so Jeremiah has been in prison, and while he is there, the Lord reveals to him that his cousin is going to come and try to get him to buy a piece of property. You remember Jeremiah is from Anathoth, which is one of the Levitical cities, and Jeremiah, being of a priestly family, has family property in that area, and his cousin is going to come and ask Jeremiah to buy another parcel of land in the district of that city that belongs to the extended family because Jeremiah is the next relative who has the right of redemption. It may be that the relative is now abandoning the property because of the Babylonian threat. That seems likely at this point. It may be that he is overtaken with debt and he has to divest himself of this property in order to pay his debts. The the land is going to be redeemed, but it needs to be redeemed by a person who belongs to the same family. And Jeremiah is the next one up. Now, I want you to imagine the absurdity of this scene. This is first being revealed to Jeremiah in a dream or a vision by the Lord, and then that dream is fulfilled when, in fact, Jeremiah's cousin shows up. And and sure enough, they're having the same conversation. So Jeremiah knows, okay, this is from the Lord. I didn't just have a really strange dream last night. I want you to see the absurdity of this scene. Right now, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Babylonian army. And Jeremiah's message has been now for years, but is certainly right now, that the Babylonians are going to capture the city and burn it. They're going to level it. The king is going to be taken captive and carried off into exile. In other words, pretty soon, there is not going to be a kingdom of Judah anymore. Is that the time to invest in real estate? Doesn't seem to be, right? We're about to lose our sovereignty. We might, in fact, die in this city. It's as if someone comes to to Davy Crockett during the Battle of the Alamo and says there's this really nice piece of land right over here on the Texas border, right along the Rio Grande. It's it's beautiful, and, and we want you to buy it, Davy. You could think of a few other things that might take priority above real estate deals at that moment. Now, why has the Lord orchestrated this particular exchange? It's because of the promise in verse 15. Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Do you remember several weeks ago when we were in Jeremiah chapter 29 and we were looking at the letter that Jeremiah sent to the captives in Babylon? And the instructions that he gives to them as they are in exile, what did he say? He said, hunker down, hide behind the walls, live in continual fear and trembling, and just hope that you survive. No, that's not what he said. He said, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, have your children have children, and look expectantly to the day that some of you are going to go home. The exiles who are receiving the letter, you're not going to make it. It's too far off. But your children or your grandchildren will. So get ready now. Develop a multi-generational project of dominion. Be salt and light and leaven. Pray for the welfare of the city where God has called you to sojourn. And look ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises. Well... What's happening here in Jeremiah 32 is something similar to that, only it's in the districts of Judah itself. 
So the exiles in Babylon are supposed to be thinking this way, and now the Jews who remain in Jerusalem are to be thinking this way. The Babylonians are literally at the doors. And what do we need to do? We need to be thinking about future generations. We need to be thinking about property, inheritance, building, planting, growing, establishing. This is not the end of the story. This is just a difficult chapter in it. You might think that you're going to die in the Battle of Helm's Deep, but you're not. There's something beyond it. This is a trilogy, and we're only in the second volume. So, Jeremiah, I want you to buy this land that, oh, by the way, is on the other side of the enemy line. It's basically an enemy-occupied territory right now, for all intents and purposes. We don't know that the Babylonians have any troops garrisoned at Anathoth, right? And obviously, Jeremiah's cousin is somehow able to be near it. He's either already in Jerusalem selling this property to Jeremiah, or he's able to come into Jerusalem, right? Somehow he's able to get there. There may not be a garrison of troops, but, but Anathoth is on the other side of the enemy line. It might as well be in a foreign territory at this point. And yet Jeremiah is told to purchase it. And so he does. He buys it. He signs the deed. He pays the money. And then in the presence of all of these witnesses, he charges Baruch to put them in an earthen vessel where they will be preserved and last for many days because you're going to need this. Jeremiah, by God's instruction, does not have a wife. He does not have children. His children are not going to inherit this property. But the property is going to stay in his family. And future generations are going to live on that property because the Lord is not done with the people of God, with the people of Israel and with that particular land. Now, do you see how prophetically, symbolically, typologically that's functioning in terms of the immediate historical context and the, and the exigent circumstances that the Jews are facing? But do you see also how symbolically and typologically it's informing our understanding of God's work? God's people are not supposed to be looking for a parachute, <laughs> They're not supposed to be waiting for helicopters to fly them off the roof of the embassy. They are not supposed to have this fatalistic sort of pessimism when the enemy is at the gates. They are supposed to realize that as the church of God, they are besieging the gates of the enemy, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. In other words, when the armies of darkness surround the holy city, the church is supposed to say, we've got them right where we want them. We don't want them all the way in Babylon. They're hard to hit from there. We want to get them up close where we can't miss. When David goes out to fight Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the Bible says he ran onto the field to meet him. You might expect him to walk slowly, but he doesn't. He rushes onto the field of battle because he's confident in the God that he serves. And the Lord is communicating in a very powerful way that his plan for his people involves multiple generations, long-term, hopeful ministry, not fearful hand-wringing, not throwing up our hands and quitting, never despairing, but always looking faithfully 
to what God has in store. Now, verse 16 continues the story. Jeremiah says, Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to Yahweh, saying, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is Yahweh of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day and in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord Yahweh, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Do you see the implicit question? How are we to reconcile what we know God has done and what we know God has said with what we are facing right now? It's the struggle between our theology and our experience, our faith and our circumstances. And by the way, like if you are the kind of person who likes to pray Scripture back to the Lord, Jeremiah 32 needs to be on your list, right? There's an awful lot of that that you can just lift straight off the page and just pray right back to the Lord. So if, this, if that's something that you do, and if it's, it's not, you need to get on that, right? This is, a, this is a good way to spend your time in prayers. Praying Scripture back to God. This part of Jeremiah 32 needs to be one of those passages that you rotate to periodically. How does, how does Jeremiah start this? He doesn't start despairing, hand-wringing, complaining. He starts by praising the Lord. Lord, you are the God who made everything that is not God, and nothing is too hard for you. You are great, you are mighty, you are good, you are the God of redemption, you are the God who has blessed us, you are the God who has established us. And oh, by the way, Lord, all of the problems that we have right now, every single one of them, they're our fault. We have not kept your law. We have not been obedient to your will. We have gotten ourselves into this mess. It is no fault of yours, but but Lord... You told me to buy that land, and I did it. But here the land is given to the Chaldeans. And you could see the implicit question. How do we reconcile these things? In other words, the symbolism that is so clear to us, perhaps, in the first third of this chapter, is not immediately as clear to Jeremiah. Even when he hears the promise, even as he is speaking the promise. Have you ever spoken better than you understood? Preachers do this all the time, right? 
I mean, if you've, if you've read the Bible aloud, you've done it a lot. You've spoken something that's true, and you know it's true. You just have no idea how true it actually is. Jeremiah just finished saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. There it is. There's the reconciliation. There is a, a hope for the future. But, but Jeremiah is still just having difficulty connecting these ideas. Because it seems like we're all about to be wiped off the map. Now, before we go on to see what the Lord says to him, and, and we'll finish up with that tonight, I want you to think about the way that this chapter is giving us a helpful model for praying through these kind of struggles. Because you're going to have these struggles too. You are going to see the things that you believe. God is sovereign. God is good. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. And then you're going to see circumstances in your life that you don't think can be reconciled with those things that you know are true. I know, I know this is true, but I just don't know how to understand what's happening to me in that way. Well, Jeremiah 32 is helping us pray through that difficulty. And you know what? It doesn't mean that all of those questions, all of our confusion, all of those doubts and struggles are immediately resolved or ever resolved in this life. God doesn't promise to answer every question that we have. But this is the way that by faith we handle those kinds of difficulties. You do not give up in despair. You do not surrender your faith. You do not become angry with the Lord because what you are experiencing doesn't seem to line up with the theology that you have. And oh, by the way, you don't immediately start revising your theology either. Now, your difficulties may cause you to re-examine things that you've taken for granted that you haven't thought through carefully and biblically. We've seen that many, many times. Probably many of us have seen that in our lives. But you don't immediately begin rewriting your theology in terms of your difficulties. You rest in what the Lord has revealed about Himself and His purposes for His people, and then you pray that the good and mighty God would help you understand and rest in that truth in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Notice verse 26 now of our chapter. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against the city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says Yahweh. For the city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction." They set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech which I did not command them nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, 
I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says Yahweh, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be bought in this land, of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captives to return, says Yahweh. So what does the Lord say? Now, did you notice that at the beginning of Jeremiah's prayer, verse 17, Behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And what does the Lord say at the beginning of his response? Verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? You know what the Lord says? He says to Jeremiah exactly what Jeremiah already knows. He doesn't give him any new information. In fact, if you've been following along, you know, with the study the last several months in Jeremiah, most of what we just read is pretty familiar to you. You've you've heard most of that before in one way or another. The Lord says, I am going to pour out judgment. I am going to give this city into the hands of the Babylonians. They are going to burn it with fire. They are going to lay it desolate. And I am also going to bring back my captives from all the lands where they've been scattered. And I'm going to bring them here. And they're going to dwell in peace and safety. And I'm going to bless them and do good for them. And they are going to love me and serve me. And it will be well. Now, thanks for reminding us of all of that, Lord. But the question was, how? That was the question that the Lord didn't answer. I mean, did you see an answer in those verses? I didn't. What what exactly is this going to look like? When is it going to happen? What are the signs that we're going to see these things fulfilled? Explain to us the strategy and the tactics by which that strategy is going to be accomplished. The Lord doesn't give that to Jeremiah. He just reassures him of the promise that salvation will come to the people of God through judgment. You're going to have to trust the Lord. And it's enough to know that. It's enough to know His Word. It's enough to be confident that even though we cannot answer every question that we ask, some of the questions that we're asking don't need to be answered in the way that we're asking them. We're asking the wrong question. We're focusing on the wrong problem, the wrong point of the issue. The point is to focus upon the Lord. And by the way, that's what Jeremiah is doing. You see it in his prayer. What is what, The first two-thirds of his prayer is all just glorying in the Lord, praising the Lord, giving thanks, extolling the Lord. What does the Lord's answer focus upon? Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? If you know that, then you can trust me. 
Trust me that all of the difficulty, all of the judgment, all of the suffering that lies immediately before you, I am going to turn all of that for good. But it will be for the good of those who love me, those who are the called according to my purpose. See, that promise in Romans 8.28 is not new in the New Testament. It's just the latest explication of a principle that is found throughout all of Scripture. The Lord says he will rejoice. Verse 41, he will rejoice in doing good. He will rejoice over his people and do them good with all his heart and with all his soul. Do you realize that when the Bible says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, it's simply asking you to be holy as the Lord himself is holy? It's asking you to simply be an image bearer, to reflect the same virtue in your life that we find in God. In other words, the Lord's not asking for a greater commitment from you than he has already made to you. He's asking you to respond in kind. I have loved you with all my heart and all my soul. I have rejoiced over you and delighted in doing good for you. And now, in gratitude for the same, love me. God delights in blessing his people. And it might not always feel that way. It might not always seem that way. When you have a Babylonian army surrounding the city and you are in prison and you know that not only am I suffering alone, I'm going to die alone one day. It may be when the city falls. It may be when Zedekiah decides he's had enough and finally has at it, right? Uh, It may be, as it turns out, many years later when he is drugged to Egypt by a disobedient people and stoned to death there for his faithful ministry to the Lord. It doesn't seem like God is delighting in doing me good. I'm hurting, I'm lonely, I'm anxious. This doesn't feel like God delights in blessing me. But no, the Lord says, I rejoice over my people to do them good. The question in Scripture is never do you understand. It is always do you believe it. We mentioned this, I think, last week. We've mentioned it many times before. When Jesus stands at Lazarus' tomb... With Martha, Lazarus' sister, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He asks her, do you believe this? He doesn't ask her, do you understand this? The question is always, when the word of God comes to us, the question is always, do you believe me? Do you believe me? Not just believe in me. A lot of people believe in God. Do you believe God when he speaks? Do you believe that what he says is true? Do you believe that his promises are sure? Do you believe that his promises are as sure as the words by which he spoke the universe into existence? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God promises to bless his church. Do you believe that that promise is going to fail? The way that we resolve this tension that Jeremiah is praying through in chapter 32 is by fixing our eyes upon the glory of God and embracing the truth, the goodness, the beauty of the work and promises of God. And that includes his judgments as well as his salvation. 
Because His salvation then, as now, as always, comes through His acts of judgment. And preeminently, we see that in the suffering and death of Jesus, our Savior, on the cross. Amen.